0: Welcome Dr. Goodyear to the podcast. I am super excited for this conversation today because we're going to talk about a lot of topics that are not really spoken about, that aren't understood. We're going to be revealing a lot of cool research around cancer and what we can actually do about it. So thank you for coming on today.
1: Oh, I'm super excited always to you know, share the information about natural, holistic and integrative cancer therapies. My pleasure.
0: So let's dive right into it. I love to know, or maybe have you explain to the audience, what does natural holistic integrative care actually mean? Just for a little backdrop, Dr. Goodyear is currently the medical director of a holistic integrative cancer healing center in Arizona, where he uses the principles and science of holistic natural and integrative therapies to treat and heal people with cancer. And it's not enough to target and eliminate cancer, one must heal, and I know we're going to talk about the difference between conventional and alternative therapies, and I love that you mentioned this, because we're going to be talking about this. It's really not just about killing cancer. It's about healing the body, right? So yeah, the first question would be, what does natural holistic integrative care actually mean?
1: Yeah, so I think each one of them to to different people can mean different things, the the least controversial, I think, in terms of different definitions is natural. For most people, natural is exactly what you think it is. It's natural. But what I tell people in terms of the natural treatment in cancer is following the evidence, following the science, these are valid terms and not what's been misconstrued over the last three years, but following the science and the use of natural therapies it can be a very aggressive approach to cancer treatment. So I tell people very quickly that natural doesn't mean easy. This could be with you know high dose vitamin C, this could be with um, hyperthermia, this could be with curcumin or artesanate. Or so these are all natural therapies that when dosed per the evidence in the science, mistletoe, many others, it's targeted, it's specific, it's effective, but it's natural, and it can be very aggressive. The second part is holistic, which for a lot of people in their mind will mean natural. But holistic is really a concept that that originated not even from medicine. It's actually uh, from uh, a past uh, Prime Minister of South Africa. He was really tired of what was called the reductionism at the time, which is basically the top down, the heavy top-down approach of learning, and it was affecting business. And so what he wanted to do is really build things from the bottom up. And instead of recognizing that things were compartmentalized, he wanted to bring things together, recognizing that everything was connected. And that's really what the concept of holism uh, means. That's holism without a W, but with an H. But today, it's more commonly holism with with a W. But it's recognizing that everything is interconnected. So, for example, what I tell people about cancer is that if we target a tumor and we destroy the immune system in the process, we've hurt the whole, which completely negates everything that we're trying to do because everybody goes, well, I want my cancer gone. Hey, rightly so. But what you're wanting is you're wanting healing, which means you want your whole healed. So, destroying one part to get rid of a cancer doesn't it, 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 those two don't equate. Cutting your nose off to spite your face is not an effective strategy. So, holism can mean natural, but holism can also mean taking a conventional therapy and using it more holistically. So, for example, here at Brio Medical, where I'm the medical director, we will take a, a form of conventional therapy like you know chemo, and we'll use it in a very low-dose targeted way in what's called low-dose metronomic chemo with insulin potentiation this allows us to recognize that, hey, chemotherapy kills good and bad cells. So let's use it to only kill bad cells and actually lift up the immune system. And that's that's the difference between a holistic and a conventional. And then integrative means we just want to integrate all these therapies together to be effective. And it's not just diabetes, it's nutrition, which I know is very very important to you, nutrition and lifestyle and psychology and emotional and spiritual and IVs and exercise all of these together. It really takes all pieces integrated to help somebody target a tumor, eliminate a tumor and heal.
0: I love it. So I know you mentioned, and we both mentioned just killing cancer or you know, getting rid of the tumor. And what I've seen a lot of the time is, when, with this approach, this can also, maybe we get rid of it, but then it pops up somewhere else. Have you also, have you noticed that a lot? Is that something that's common?
1: You know, it's really interesting. What I do is I just simply ask questions. Science is basically just a, it's just a curiosity. It's like, you know, cats are curious. It's just the science of curiosity. You 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 see something, you ask a question, and then you look at the evidence and follow where that goes. And so th- that's what I do. And so, when you look at the science, and I talk about this a lot, for example, on my podcast, practicing with dr. nathan uh, practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear, I will be launching a triad series on how full dose chemotherapy, radiation surgery will cause cancer to spread. So they actually, in multiple studies, multiple studies, they describe not just the what, that is, does it do it, but the how of full-dose chemotherapy or radiation or surgery, but full-dose chemotherapy is definitely the most well-described, how that actually causes cancer to spread. It can shrink a primary tumor, but it will absolutely cause the cancer to spread. And when you look at that, you go, well, it shrunk my primary tumor, made it go away for a year. That's great. But if you cause it to spread, now what you've done is you've caused 90% of why patients have morbidity or adverse events from cancer, as well as 90% of mortality. So the strategy to shrink a tumor, if it spreads it, it is absolutely not a strategy that long-term is what we need to do. So absolutely, we see that both from a metastatic spread, but also from a local recurrence, no doubt about it.
0: So before we move on, um, I think it's really important to understand what is cancer, because this is something that's probably not really understood either.
1: Yeah, great, great question. I think that's foundational. I think a lot of people look at cancer and see cancer as some kind of, um, this may date me a little bit, but some kind of uh, bad Sigourney Weaver alien 19 movie that's implanted in our body. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not a part of us it is a part of us there there are cells so whatever tissue type the origin site is whether that be prostate breast lung that origin those origin cells they are us but they are a very abnormal form of us when you look at you know how does cancer develop it's never one thing it's not a one hit hypothesis it's it's multiple things that come together and it's an adaptation in the short term to an inhospitable environment now, in the short term, that's great because these changes that the cells take on are 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 working to survive. And in the short term, that that has its benefits. But the problem is in the long term, it develops a life of its own. It starts to use all of these normal pathways and mechanisms in normal cells in the normal environment of the body, and it uses it for its survival at the detriment of the body. So it's just basically very abnormal cells that have, basically developed out of the process of trying to survive because of inhospitable an uh, environment, and they just develop a life of their own and they essentially take over. So in a nutshell, that's kind of a broad, easy stroke in, in, you know evaluation of what cancer is. Thank
0: you for sharing that. So I know that you have obviously a different approach to cancer. And before we get into the conventional approach, um, a little bit more of that, Do you see a lot of remissions and like people? Because I think a lot of the time when people get a cancer diagnosis, it's like everyone's worst nightmare. Like, basically, this is my death sentence. Is that true? Is it a death sentence? Like, are we able to actually heal from cancer and not have to live with it kind of thing? Like, are we able to heal from, you know, diagnosis? Because I think a lot of the time it's okay. It's almost like this sentence when we get the diagnosis.
1: Yeah. First, the short is absolutely healing is possible. You know, when you look at the word cancer, there's probably no word that um, it's probably in the top three of words that evoke the most fear. So the first thing that I have that I do when a patient comes into my office is I tell them we have three foundational objectives for you. Number one, give you hope let hope dominate over fear because when you look at fear fear can come on us that's human nature but choosing not to let fear come into us and dominating dominate us is something different so always looking to choose hope over fear not false false hope but but real hope never never misleading or being deceptive but saying there's always hope and and then showing where that is two is healing the word physician in Hebrew, rophe, actually means healer. And then last is the doc, uh, word doctor in Latin is teacher. So let me give you two very quick examples of how healing is possible in two very difficult situations. One is a gentleman with stage four prostate cancer, wildly metastatic bone metastasis, recurrent, long-standing, has undergone numerous conventional therapies, whether that be uh, chemo, uh, radiation, and also what's called androgen deprivation therapy, which is hormone. And he just left about two weeks ago. His scan shows the bone mets have resolved. Okay. Now, he's reached a point of healing. Is his healing journey done? No, that that must continue. And the second patient is a patient that came to us with a nine by 10 centimeter breast mass and bone mets. Okay. And so what happens there? is this patient now has a scan that also shows those bone mats are resolved and that breast mass is resolved. That patient has no visible or laboratory evidence of disease, both of those. So are they healed from every standpoint that we have to measure? Yes, but their healing journey doesn't begin. And how I equate that is this. I read an article one time where they were just uh, interviewing a couple that had been married 65 years. And they asked them, well, how did you do this? And they said, we woke up every day committed to the relationship. Doesn't mean every day was great. Doesn't mean every week was great. And that's what I tell our patients when they leave. Look, your healing journey is beginning. Every day, it's a commitment to get up to continue to heal. So that 65 years later, you sit there and you go, yes, I had some good days, some bad days, some good years and bad years, but I committed to it and I am here. And that's really, that's the same process that those patients are, but it's always possible for every patient, even if it's recurrence, resistance, stage, whatever. Absolutely it is.
0: I love those two points because one with the hope, I think it's also really important to recognize that the subconscious mind is very much a big part of healing. Like that's the part responsible for healing the body. And if we constantly tell ourselves, I'm broken, I'm dying, I'm weak, la, 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 that's what's programmed into our minds. So we also need to be careful what we're feeding our brain. And I think that's also, you know, our doctors as well. We need to be careful with that too. And the other point that you said, health is built day by day, right? So even if we have symptoms, whether it's cancer or any other symptoms, a lot of the time it can also be feedback by how we're living our lives and things like that. And obviously the body needs to be healthy to be able to heal and keep a strong immune system, kill cancer cells, that kind of thing. So yes, it's not about, okay, I'm healed. I'm just just going to go back to the same habits and patterns I was doing before. It's about long-term health. So I love the relationship example that you brought in too, because that's what it takes for a healthy relationship. That's what it takes for a healthy body. It's not about, well, I can just do whatever I want and, you know, not take care of myself. Then we don't really have long-term health, right? So I love that you brought that up. And I was wondering...
1: And on your first point there, I think that's very important on the, the believing the, the, you know, the mental side of it, the conscious side of it, you said, because, you know, those are, there's a whole arena of science called sports medicine, where when a baseball player goes up to the bat, to bat or a, a kicker in football, American football goes up to kick a field goal, they envision themselves hitting a home run, kicking the winning field goal. If they don't, then they, in most cases, don't. So there's a whole field of science that recognizes when you envision the end and, and it's successful, you are more apt to succeed in achieving that. And that same strategy, that same science, that same process needs to be built in to medicine, not just in the treatment of cancer, but pick your disease. And, and conventional medicine, unfortunately, doesn't do a good job of that but it absolutely should be. And it's critical. And I think that was a good point by you. Absolutely.
0: I love that. And I wanted to kind of touch on the conventional route. If the conventional approach isn't that effective, why are why is the alternative holistic approach that seems to be more successful, correct me if I'm wrong, why is that not mainstream? Why are we almost acting as if there's not really much more we can do, or I'm not gonna say there's a cure to cancer, but there are other therapies that are working actually quite well, like the ones that you're using. Why is this not mainstream?
1: Yeah, I think, wow, that's a that's a really challenging question. And it's a question we get a lot. So we actually answered it on, um, we had a question come across Instagram last night after I did a webinar, and it was basically along those lines. And so i I answered that. Um, he said, "Well, it's your theory. I said, "No, it's not a theory." And so I quoted a bunch of studies to to you know prove my point. But you know why why does conventional medicine not do more integrative? Well, I think some of it is they don't they just simply don't know. Um, you know, a lot of people would ask me in the beginning, why don't my why doesn't my oncologist know this? why don't why don't my other doctors know this?" There's so much information out there, there's so much data, there's so much research, it, it's hard for any individual to really keep um, you know, a, on, on top of all of it, let alone the way continuing medical ed- education has evolved over the last many decades. It's really been one that has propagated more groupthink rather than critical think, uh, where it's to say, okay, here's what we want you to read, here's what we want you to learn to continue your medical education. So there's no freedom or ability to critically evaluate what's out there uh, for your own. And I think we do have to recognize very importantly here that cancer is cancer. It's a beast. So there is cancer that nothing will treat and will it will respond to nothing. So cancer is sometimes a situation like that that's very grave. But I think a lot of it is just because we have these these groups that we get comfortable with. And a lot of it is the conventional mindset. They look at things that are quote unquote, integrative, alternative, natural, holistic, and in their minds, they immediately discredit it without even looking at the science. You know, the perfect example is they say, well, dietary intake, sugar has no role in cancer, none. And then the doctor's sitting there writing an order and the patient goes, well, what are you doing? Well, I'm I'm writing an order for a PET-CT scan. But well, what's that? Oh, this is, a, this is a scan where they do a CT, but then they give you radioisotope sugar to show where the cancer is rapidly growing. Wait a second, I thought you said sugar had no role. Well, it doesn't. Then why does it help me to see the cancer? So, you know, the, people intuitively recognize that. And I think even the doctors do, but it's just like, oh, no, out of sight, out of mind. I'm just going to move on. So I think it's uh, it's just, we get into our packs and our comfort zone, but we as physicians, our job is to be advocates for our patients. Our job is to, to explore all information and to critically analyze the data, to be advocates for our patients, not for insurance, not for government regulatory bodies, not for hospitals. Our job is to be an advocate for our patient. That is our role. And I think what's happened is, Doctors have moved away from that advocacy position for many reasons of which we don't need to discuss here. And I think that is what has precipitated where doctors just don't read. They go, Oh, you're alternative. So you have no evidence behind you. So everything you do is false. And that's it. So it's it's basically a lack of debate technique. And they said, Well, you know, I don't or I can't debate you. So I'm just going to call you names and move on. And that's what happens.
0: Yeah, this is definitely a rabbit hole that we could go down and down and down, but thank you for your, your input there. Um, I do also wanna to touch on what do you believe might be behind the development of cancer and like the increasing rates specifically, because it seems like this is going up.
1: Yeah. Is that correct? Oh yeah, it definitely is. You know, it's really interesting because when you look at, um, I think, there's going to be, history is going to look back on uh, cancer, and I think really divide it into what is called pre-COVID and post-COVID. Now, what happens is when you mention that word, everybody starts to get, oh, no, 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 no. The science is really starting to bear fruit here. And and we have to be very careful when we um, make statements. We need to make sure the science is there. I'm actually speaking in a conference in April And I'm talking about the connection between that virus and cancer. Now, even before that, in 2019, there was an article, two articles published in Lancet Journal, a very prestigious journal on medicine that showed that epidemiologically, the the incidence of cancer was skyrocketing in high-income countries. So in high-income countries, cancer in 2019 is the number one cause of mortality in adults over cardiovascular disease by a rate of two and a half to one. So not not even close. So that's 2019. Now what we know about um, COVID, the spike proteins, the M proteins, et cetera, is that it does a lot of things that really aggravate and help cancer. If cancer is present, if it's present, we can't see it. If it if there's active treatment. So when you look at, for example, spike protein, it hyperactivates platelets. A lot you know most, most will agree that it can, you know, cause clots. Absolutely. Well, cancer uses platelets to build what's called angiogenesis. This is the vascular blood supply growth that it needs, but it also helps it to spread. Okay? And when you actually look at the conventional literature of how you define what's called an oncovirus, these are viruses that have been that are shown to cause cancer. HIV, Epstein-Barr virus, human papilloma virus. These are viruses that cause cancer. There's clear definitions of what an oncovirus is. SARS-CoV-2, it checks every box, every box. So you know, pre-2019 epidemiologic studies said, hey, cancer is increasing in high-income countries, even middle-high-middle-income countries, and even in the United States, 23 states cancer is the number one cause of death in in adults. But now we have a whole different set of circumstances that is going to, I think, really aggravate that ongoing trend. And I think we're going to see that accelerate.
0: So does this mean if anyone has had COVID that it increases the risk of, like, what does it mean exactly for us as individuals?
1: Yeah. So when you look at, um, let's just take the spike proteins because there's many other things that could be involved here. Um, Spike proteins in and of themselves, whether from injection or infection, okay, it doesn't matter the source. Those spike proteins can aggravate uh, cancer that is in treatment, in remission. So I think the primary uh, concern is in those that are in remission, have had recent cancer, or inactive treatment, those are the ones where I've actually seen they've been in remission. They get infection. So we're not even talking about injection here. Infection and the and the cancer not only returns, but it, it spreads like that. I mean we have a patient here right now who is in all you know all sense and purpose in a very stable process of disease. Almost in remission, but not quite there. She was actually recurrent. She would actually had resolution of the vast majority of her bone mets, lung, liver, and she had just a, a, a spot, and then rip roaring infection. And so what I did is I said, let's wait, let's repeat a scan, and sure enough, it had just blown up everywhere, and and that's not the first time I've seen that. I've seen that time and time and time again. So you know when you see something and then ignore it time and time again then you're just you're allowing yourself to be willfully ignorant of what you're seeing and so what we're now starting to see in the literature is an understanding of this mechanism of how now the problem is nobody wants to talk about this because they're scared of the repercussions but it's like look this is just the science let's be honest about it let's help people let's inform them Let's not throw politics in it. It's just the science, and discuss that, and be objective and honest. And the great thing about science is we can disagree. You know, this idea that science is without question and without disagreement is bunk. That's a that's an old term, but anyways, it's bunk. Doctors come together, scientists come together, and read a study, and the actual discourse is a good part of science. And and that's what we need, but that's where we're not anymore. And so we need that open public discourse. So lead with the science and just, uh, I think that's, well, leading with the science and leading by experience, we're gonna see this, um, the incidence of cancer, the prevalence of cancer, both of those, we're gonna see those go up. And we're already starting to see that. Of course, we were even seeing that before this pandemic where younger and younger people are are showing up with cancer. We actually have a woman here right now with uh, stage four breast cancer. She was actually diagnosed when she was twenty four years old, uh, so she's twenty six now. So, but um, so yeah, it's um, it's going to be increasing. As I think, we're also going to be seeing many other diseases increasing as well.
0: Before I, first of all, I do appreciate that you mentioned the science thing because yes, I, even if we look back at the past, like how has science evolved, or where where have we even said like this is impossible or even even things like the world is flat like oh now it's now it's not like we are able to change our minds disagree more science is coming out more proof so i think that's a really important point to make and before we get into prevention and solutions you mentioned high income countries like first world countries are Is cancer more common in these places versus lower income countries or like third world countries? Do you know?
1: Definitely. Like, why would it be?
0: Definitely as a
1: whole. Yes, it's uh, in in that instance, really what you would say is, you know, cancer is in many ways a disease of lifestyle. Okay. Um, And and so when you look at these high income countries, they're more of the typical Western, you know, type of, of diet of lifestyle. Um, whereas comparing it to low-income countries, now they can have their own incidence of cancers, okay? Because when you look at, you know, approximately 20 to 25% of all cancers are caused by infectious diseases. And so in some parts of the world, parasites are very prominent, and certain parasites can be very, very tied to certain types of cancer. But as a whole, it is a disease of lifestyle. So, in these other, um, maybe less wealthy, less um, um, affluent countries, their lifestyle is one of, you know, involuntary fasting, more plant-based diet, less stress, more work, more physical labor, better sleep, better relationships. Okay, so it is very clear that in 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 lifestyles that are of what america is what you know what canada is and these other types of countries in europe and germany and uh you know the uk cancer is much more prevalent there of course obesity is a big driver of course and diet but uh, absolutely there's a difference it's definitely more prevalent that doesn't exclude those lower income countries I mean, they have their own set of issues, you know, infectious disease and and, and other issues, but um, it absolutely is.
0: Yeah, and we're seeing a crisis of lifestyle diseases, right, going on in these countries. So the good thing is there is a lot that we can do, right? Because I don't want this to be an episode of doom and gloom and we're all screwed. You either. I know we're really about hope over fear and obviously awareness and information is, the knowledge is really important, like the first step. So you also mentioned that, this is not just for like older people this can also affect young people so what can we do preventatively um, to reduce that risk and yeah let's just start there
1: yeah so with the, the simplest way to start off is to is to know your risk and in that it's to you know know who you are know who your mom and dad are in terms of, you know, what are their risks and what did they transmit to you? Now, I don't necessarily mean looking at genetics. It's just, you know, if your mom was diagnosed with breast cancer at 45, your dad had breast cancer, I mean, uh, prostate cancer at 55, there ought to be a cue in your mind that there's something there that I need to focus on early. And the lifestyle is really where we can dominate and and really focus on prevention. What I tell people is the best answer to cancer is never get it, obviously. And then the best answer for cancer beyond that's the immune system, but lifestyle, whether that be nutrition, good balanced nutrition. You know, everybody wants to focus on, you know, nutrition as, as if it's a drug or if it's a supplement where there's one size fits all, one package that's gonna treat everything, but that's not the case. So a good balanced nutrition good balanced, you know, stress, sleep, good relationships. You know, that's one that people just ignore. Good relationships. Um, You know, you have the sense of purpose in your life. You rest well. You know, all of these things, though they seem small, they're actually not. They're pillars. They're pillars of not just disease prevention, but they're pillars in disease treatment. So these are the way that you basically, you, 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 grab the reins of control of the direction of your body, where you're going, you know, disease is not something that just for the most part, people wake up and they go, oh, well, wow. look, lo and behold here, I'm 65 and I have, you know, whatever cancer. Well, you know, what was your lifestyle? Oh, I was smoking, you know, I was uh, drinking a a fifth of whiskey every night, uh, eating Twinkies, ding-dongs, and drinking Coke, and I'm shocked that I'm 350 and I have now liver cancer. Well, you shouldn't be. You know, so it's about recognizing your risk and then instituting a strategy to prevent it. And it's really simple, um, but it just takes effort. It takes time. Now, beyond that, you know, we really get into more aggressive prevention. Um, but that, I think that's foundational that that's really important.
0: What are your thoughts on, because I've heard of people too, in my surroundings of, well, she worked out and she ate so healthy and she was vegan and she had like the perfect lifestyle and she still got cancer. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, we see that too. Um, what I tell, I tell those patients a couple of things. One is, well, we have no idea where you'd be if you didn't live a healthy lifestyle. So that's that's a question we can just never answer. You could have been in a much worse position than you are now. The second is, you know, there are things in our life exposure that any good nutritional status maybe or lifestyle wouldn't prevent. So for example, just to pull up a common, uh, you know, recent event, Is the train derailment in the US that a lot of people right now are talking about, where there's been a massive release of toxins into the environment? What's going to be the impact of that? We don't know yet, but we can look at similar types of issues, like take Chernobyl, okay? Massive cancer outbreak, massive, not just in the generation exposed, but in generation after generation. Okay. So that type of exposure is something that's very different. So we don't know if was that an exposure that occurred in this patient who was living a healthy lifestyle, where it just overwhelms the body. And so a lot of cases, that's what we're seeing is, you know, patients that are exposed to overwhelming trauma, stress, toxin exposure, and so it's it's not so much that they, and I would put relationships in there too, okay? That again, that, that's something that people just don't connect to cancer, but it absolutely is there. And so you may eat a healthy lifestyle, but yet, let's say you're working night shifts. Okay, well, guess what? That is a carcinogen. That's a World Health Organization, calls it a carcinogen, Other other organizations do. So you can eat healthy, exercise and do all those things. But if you're countering your circadian rhythm by working at night and sleeping during the day, guess what? Your risk of cancer is skyrocketing. So, you know, it, it's it, there's a lot of things that go into this. And so what you actually have to do is also look at causation. Now, if somebody comes in with cancer, you obviously want to treat first, get ahead of the game, and then work on causation. You don't want to work on causation and then just let cancer continue to grow. So in this instance, we have to evaluate all of those root kind of causes in a preventative strategy. And what you're talking about there is somebody that's lived healthy, lived well, you have to go, okay, genetically, is there something here? Has there been some kind of mass big exposure in your life that has really tipped the scale? Because in those individuals, a lot of times, but not always, that's what you'll find.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you mentioning that. Because it's also, I think all the time we look at health, like diet, exercise. No, holistically, there's a lot more. You mentioned relationships. Even we see a lot of the time, especially in women, like suppressing and men too, suppressing emotions are not saying how they feel, or maybe, you know, taking care of everyone else, neglecting themselves. That is also like part of our health too, and trauma and all of those things. So I think it's important to recognize that there are so many aspects of health, so many that we can control, some we can't. And that's also where it's like, For our mental health, being able to recognize I'm doing everything I can instead of just being like, well, the world is so toxic and I need to, you know, get rid of everything in my house. And that can just kind of get to like more stress and anxiety. Right. Um, But kind of finishing off here, I appreciate your time here. Um, What would be like your message or your advice for someone who maybe has a concern about. Having cancer, or maybe they have a recent diagnosis, like what would be yeah, your message or, or advice for them?
1: I would say the first is number one, as I mentioned earlier, um, expect fear to come on you, but don't let fear control you. Instead, hope over fear. And again, a lot of people would say, Oh, that's an esoteric exercise. You know, that's you know, it, it's not. It's 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 real. If you choose to have hope. fear. I believe fear and hope, they're a choice. And so which do you choose? When you wake up in a day, do you choose to have a good day or you wake up and say, it's going to be a crappy day today? Guess what? Probably going to be a crappy day today. Hope and fear are, are a choice. That doesn't mean that fear can't come on you, but you can choose hope. So what I tell patients is let's choose hope real hope, and then focus on healing. And, and those two processes I think are critical. And then that last is, is teaching, teaching. When I teach patients, when I teach people, whether that be on social media, on my podcast, on the website, it's because I want to empower them. I want to empower them to take the reins of control of their healing potential. So it's hope, it's heal, it's teach. Those are foundational in everything that we do. And the hope and healing are always possible. And those two case studies I presented to you, okay, one the gentleman's name is Edward and the lady's name is Susan. Real people, real lives, real husbands, real wives, real mothers, real grandparents. They were told there's no hope. And now they have no evidence of disease. They they were told that because of the bone mets, there was nothing that could be done. No hope. They chose hope. Of course, they had fear, but healing was possible. So I would say hope and healing, focus on those. Always focus on the possibilities of achieving those. Don't let doctors tell you what your body can't do. Focus on what your body can and let your body decide. Because the body is designed to heal.
0: Amen. I love that so much because the thing is we're also the authority of our own health. so if if we have that experience and we it doesn't feel good in our gut, or it's just, you know there's nothing you can do and we want to get another opinion, we we want to actually believe that there's something we can do, we can go find somebody else, right? Because we're in charge. And That's so right. I love that we do have so many resources now, and everything that you're sharing just is so amazing. and, your integrative healing center which is also such an amazing thing to have at our disposition now like there are other options and so thank you so much for all of the work that you're doing and i'd love for you to share if people do want to learn more or if they're interested in getting contact with you how can they do that where are they where can they find you etc
1: yeah they can find us in a lot of different ways uh i'm the medical director at brio medical in scottsdale arizona uh, beautiful here uh, you can find us at brio-medical.com. That's the website there. I also have a personal brand website, which is practicingwithdrnathangoodyear.com. Um, I love the podcast medium. I absolutely love it. I love the dialogue, the conversation, just like what we had today. And there you can find me on, um, I'm sorry, my website is drgoodyear.com. The podcast is practicingwithdrnathangoodyear.com. You can find me on Instagram, dr.goodyear.com. LinkedIn, Facebook, you know, YouTube, all over the place. So we're everywhere. If you just search Dr. Goodyear on any of those uh, social media platforms and uh, look for uh, Practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear on wherever you download podcasts, that's where you'll find me.
0: Amazing. I love that you have so many platforms and resources for everyone to find you. I'll put all the links in the show notes. Thank you for coming on today. Really appreciate your time and everything that you shared with us.
1: Your interview was fabulous. It was a pleasure talking to you. And and hats off to you because I think it's very important for people that um take this platform and really reach out to the general public and help empower them and, and give them information. Let them decide. So I, I really lift up people like yourself because you're doing a great service to the general population and you deserve uh, you know, you you deserve accolades for that. So thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Dr. Goodyear. You
1: bet.